connecting and kind of all on this on that same journey. And um, I've, I've been especially excited about this series that that we're in right now because it's I'm just processing a whole lot. Um, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of these these kind of five catalysts is what we're calling them. Um, we've been looking at this idea over the past few weeks that. As trust goes, so goes a relationship. And that's true in anything. Um, any relationship you have, if you read any sort of a uh, um, leadership expert book, they will almost inevitably go to the idea of trust. Trust is key on leadership teams. It's trust in any sort of relationship that is absolutely essential to that relationship flourishing. It's interesting that when we go back to the original relationship of God to humanity, trust or the lack thereof is the very first sin. Satan, Satan, Satan tempts humanity where he says, um, are you sure you can trust God? Did God really say? And the, the seed of doubt was, I'm not sure he really has your best interest in mind. You know, maybe, maybe kind of he's doing this for himself and it's not for your good. And so trust is the ultimate issue that breaks. So the relationship breaks over a matter of trust. And so then the, the story of salvation history is, is God not trying to make us act a certain way. It's not, about, it's not about giving commandments and Jesus comes and, okay, that wasn't enough. I'm going to give you more. Jesus comes and say, I'm here to rebuild the trust relationship. And if, if you place your trust in me, you can have a relationship with God because I've been good for you. I've been good enough for you, something that you can never attain to. So it's essentially about trust. And so as we look at that, we say, okay, my relationship with the God, it's about trust. So, so how does... How, how does my trust in God build? Because it's not a matter of me just like, okay, I'm going to work harder and you know, try to trust you more and more. That we actually see it's the Holy Spirit's activity. He's the one who is doing things in my life, doing things in your life to, to build trust in God. And so we've said, if we were to sit down and write out our stories, and I, I know some of you guys have done this. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to do it during this series using these five spiritual growth catalysts. When were the times you'd say, my trust in God grew? My trust in God got bumped. My trust in God expanded. It got bigger. We use the word faith. And we would say no matter what we came up with, they would fall underneath one of these kind of five categories that, that we're looking at that's inside your bulletin. Practical teaching, private disciplines. We talked about those the last two weeks. Tonight we're going to look at this idea of personal ministry. And then over the next two weeks as we finish up before the summer, providential relationships and pivotal circumstances. And so tonight what I want to look at is this, this idea of um, one of the key ways that it's maybe the most simple in terms of like obvious, like right there, and there's not a whole lot to it. I mean, you could just kind of say it, it doesn't really need to be explained that much. But, but, but maybe it's one of the hardest things to do is personal ministry. And I want to look tonight, if you have your Bibles, turn them, turn them to Matthew chapter 14. We're just going to be in this one passage all night long. Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 13. Now, this is, if, if, if you've been around the church for a while, this is a really, really, it's a, it's a well-known story. You might go, oh, yeah, 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 I know this one. But there's something that happens right in the middle of this. It's, it's, it's kind of a statement that's made that has an enormous, maybe, maybe uh, typifies this issue or the tension, the struggle that we're going to come across when it comes to personal ministry better than maybe anywhere that I can think of in Scripture. Matthew chapter 14. Verse 13 says this, when Jesus heard what had happened, 
he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, let me explain what happened. He had just heard that his, his cousin, John, who's baptizing people, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. John was speaking against uh, one of the Herods, specifically his illegitimate uh, marriage to his uh, sister, essentially, and speaking you know, out against it, kind of using it as sermon illustrations, and Herod didn't like it very much, and so he, he throws John the Baptist in prison, and over sequence of events, John is beheaded, he's killed. And Jesus just finds out about this, and so he kind of goes off to mourn, he goes off to be alone, in silence, he says. Now, hearing of this, I mean, here's, hearing that Jesus went somewhere, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So the crowds are walking around the lake, or the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, to catch up with him. Verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening was approaching... The disciples came to him and said, this, this, is a, this is a remote place where we are, and it's getting late. Send, send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. People have been walking for about a half day. They're, we're told they're in a remote place. This is like in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere around. And they're all hungry. Probably the disciples might have been the most hungry. That's probably why they said it. They probably weren't that concerned about them. It was more, hey, I'm hungry. I'd like to kind of be done with this day if we can. Um, and in the middle of that, Jesus says, Jesus replies, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Here's the tension. This is the tension. If you ever engage in this third spiritual growth catalyst here, this, this thing that we call, that we're calling personal ministry, this is the experience you will eventually come to. Or if you have before, you've, you've experienced this before that... Maybe you hear of some need, something's going on, or you, or you see some opportunity, and, and your first thought is, man, you have this kind of like inward, like, man, someone, someone should really do something about that. Like, someone should meet that need. And oftentimes what's going on is this is God telling you to go meet that need. This is God telling you to get involved. Now, our response is like, no, 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 God, I, I pray for the people who go meet the need. Like, I'm, I'm a prayer warrior. God, send the right people, send them there. And, and oftentimes what's going on is that that thing inside us is not, don't, you don't need to pray for them. Why don't you just go do it? But see, when, here's the problem. Here's, here's sort of how the tension comes up, at least for me. When I imagine that, like when I kind of put myself in the, okay, like what would that look like? How would I do that? The first thought that comes to mind is like, God, that's, I'm, I'm an addict. I can't do that. That's not my skill set. I don't have the time for that. I don't have the, there's no way that I could step into something. I'm not smart enough or, you know, I don't have enough experience. You know, what if they ask hard questions or what if they, you know, need this or gosh, you know, I'm going to be working with this age kids. I've never been around kids like that before. I, I, I couldn't do any of that sort of thing. See, there's going to come a time when you have this kind of inner moving inside you. It's, it's, it's sort of like this elbow in your ribs, and it just kind of real regularly keeps coming up. And it's not guilt, but it's God kind of, kind of pushing you, saying, I want you to get involved to meet that need right there. And so the disciples do the exact same thing that we start doing. Look in verse 17. They start making excuses. They say... Uh, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. And they answered, 
you know, we're not prepared, we're not equipped, we can't do it, whatever it might be. But then Jesus' response is interesting. In verse 18, he says this, bring them to me. See, I would suggest this is how God responds every single time I have this kind of like, well, I'm not equipped, I'm not prepared, that's not really my, you know, that's not my bag. Even though this is kind of on my heart. Say, you, know, you know, you might say, ah, but you know, I don't, I don't even have a college education. And God says, okay, well, how, how far did you go? Oh, I only, I only did a year. Okay, bring me that year. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, God, I don't even know the Bible. I just, I just took the wrapper off my Bible. I don't, I don't hardly know any answers. Well, bring me the answers that you know. God, I just, I just don't have any time. I've got so little time. I know it wouldn't be enough. Well, how much time do you have? Just bring me your time, if you would. I don't, I don't have enough experience. I mean, I've never been. But, well, just bring me the experience that you have. Or, man, I, I'm afraid to fly. And these short-term missions trips that they're talking about, you've got to get an airplane and fly. I'm afraid. Of, why don't you bring me your fear? See, Jesus says, just bring me what you have. And that's exactly what they do. Totally inadequate. Yes, yes. There's no question about it. Jesus isn't wrong. It's inadequate. Bring it to me. Verse 19. When he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the inadequacy, the five loaves and two fish, looking into heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them back to the disciples. So he gives back to the 12 disciples standing around him the inadequate stuff that they had given him. It was exactly the same shape when they got it back, but they gave it to him. He gave it back, and he gives them back what they'd already given. And I would say if all we get out of tonight, if we just end the sermon here tonight and we walk out, this, this is it. It is absolutely essential in our Christian experience what they learned right here. Once he handed them the fish, they did what they knew how to do. That's it. Because that's all they could do. They just did what they knew how to do because that's all they could do. They didn't know how to feed 5,000 people, did they? No. And he didn't expect them to. But he said, do you know how to hand out a piece of bread? Yeah. Do you know how to turn around and give it to someone? Yeah. Why don't you do that? Well, it's not going to work. You know, excuse me. I don't know know about this. And verse 19 says, and the disciples gave them to the people. See, they, they, they did what they knew how to do. Trusting that Jesus would do what only Jesus can do. They, they did what they knew how to do, trusting that God would do what only God can do. See, when you feel this kind of internal nudging that we were talking about, sometimes it's God saying, I want you to sign up. I want you to go over and talk to them. I, you know those ladies on the other side of the street? I, I want you to go over to that group. I want you to go pick up that pamphlet. I want you to go to that group. I want you to show up on that or to that event. And see, our responsibility, every single time, it is super duper simple. It's the most simple thing in the world. You just do what you know how to do and trust your Heavenly Father to do what only He can do. Because, see, that, that, that inner kind of tension, you know, where you're just like, oh, I'm scared, and uh, all the thoughts going through your mind, and what could happen, and it could be this, or what about that? That, that sort of fear, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm unprepared, I can't. What that is, that is your, your faith or your confidence in God muscle being stretched, being worn out, so that it kind of breaks it down in order to make it stronger later. Because, see, here's, here's what's absolutely key, and I don't want us to miss this. 
the size of your confidence in God is what is at stake at that moment. Now think about that. Your confidence in God. How, how different would your life be if you had huge confidence in God? We've asked that question a couple times in the series. Man, my life would be different. If I had perfect confidence in God, my life would be different. The size of your confidence in God is at stake at that moment right there where you have this inner idea of, man, maybe I should step, maybe I should do that, maybe I should show up, maybe I should sign up, maybe I should go help with that group, whatever it might be. What's at stake is not just the needs going unmet. Lots of times when we talk about personal ministry, which is a very valid thing, personal, personal ministry has an impact. There are people whose, whose lives are completely impacted by that. But here's the thing. If you don't do it, you're not like indisposable. Like God can find someone else. It's not like, oh, I'm the only person who could do this. That's not it. It's not a matter of if you don't, no one will. God wants to do something in you when he calls you to something. The shape of your soul, your interior world changes when you do it. And like we've said this whole series, the only thing that you will get out of this life is the person you become. The only thing I will get out of this life is the person I become. That's my becoming process. God is using this catalyst of personal ministry to make me a certain kind of person, to make me into the image of Christ. What's at stake is who I'm becoming. See, the issue is God wants to do something in you that impacts your trust in him. And that impacts your intimacy. The most important thing in your life is your intimacy with your Heavenly Father. I remember my, my mom, ever since I was a little kid, always telling me, Brent, the most important thing in your life is your relationship with God. And she meant that sort of personal, intimate, not like what I do, but intimate, personal relationship with God. That if, if all else fails, that's the one thing that will never fall or that will never fail. See, many of you would say that's my story. I think a lot of you say that's absolutely what happened. I know that's mine. When I was, uh, I remember in... The end of my 11th grade year, my family moved. We were kind of living in Lafayette area, and I was going to Centaurus High School. And we moved up to kind of the Niwot, Longmont area. And um, for just a, a series of reasons, I ended up switching high schools in my senior year. So I'm, I'm at Niwot High School, new high school. I don't really know anyone. And, and uh, I heard there was a Bible study going on. And so I just showed up at this Bible study in the morning, and, and it was like an early I can't believe I got up that early to go to a Bible study. I don't think I would do that now. But I got up really early to go to this Bible study. And uh, I have kids now. That's why I would never do it now. And so um, I remember showing up, and it, it was like week two. Some the, the leader just, I don't know, went off the deep end or something happened. It was just gone. And I don't even remember this series of events, but somehow, I, I, I don't know if I was like, oh, do it or something, but somehow I got lassoed into doing it. And as soon as I did, I remember going home being like, what did I just do? I don't know how to teach you to do to a Bible study. That's insane. So I'm panicked because I'm thinking I got like seven days to, you know, I got to do something and have something and, you know, have something that's like meaningful. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. So all of a sudden I'm in panic mode. I'm like listening to the radio, to Bible teachers. I'm, I'm reading. I'm just like, doing, and I'm freaked out because I am way inadequate to lead a Bible study for 40 high schoolers. That I, and I don't even know them. I'm like the new kid. And so I remember just being so over my head and each week kind of coming in and hoping it, and sometimes it probably wasn't that good and, and the group kind of dwindled down pretty small, so I'm pretty sure it wasn't that good. But I got through that year, and I'll tell you what, my, my trust in God was like hugely expanded because I stepped in going, there's no way, I could, I'm totally inadequate to do this, and I was. <laughs> it's not like it was false humility. I didn't know anything. 
And I stepped in and I did it and I tried and I failed and all this sort of thing. And it wasn't that great. But man, I had this expanded, slightly larger trust in my relationship with God. See, when, when we step into a ministry position, what it does is it, it positions me to experience God's power that I never would experience otherwise. I just wouldn't have the opportunity to do it. Dallas Willard always says, essentially what the kingdom of God is about, it's about power sharing. God wants to share his power with you, but you have to be a certain kind of person who can be trusted with kingdom power. And so he shapes us into the kind of people he wants us to be in order to share his power with us. And so it stretches us, it scares us, it takes us absolutely to the end of our adequacy. But personal ministry forces us rather to be more consciously dependent on God than we are during the normal parts of our day. To some degree, this is the story of every single volunteer here at Timberline Church. I I know so many of you guys have, have volunteered, have stepped up into some sort of a personal ministry. And you get to the place where... Okay, I'm willing to step out. I'm willing to do something. And, and God just does some pretty amazing things. Um, and here's the cool thing, too. This, this catalyst, it doesn't really matter where you are in the spiritual journey. This is something that can really do something significant to your, to your relation, or with your relationship with God. Take a look, if you would, on the back of your bulletin. Do you see this, this little kind of, it's an image on the very bottom, blue picture. We've talked about this before in here. Uh, th- this is the spiritual growth continuum that, that was discovered through this reveal study that was done over uh, multiple years, interviewing about, uh, uh, I, I think it's about 4,000 different churches, about 40,000 different individuals here in America to determine who's sitting out in a church, who shows up to a church, like who's, who's a part of a church community. And they said, what emerged out of doing this assessment was there, there were four kind of categories of, of, of people that, that every individual self-identified as. They go, yep, this is me, based on the responses to all these different questions. And these four categories are, are listed on there. The first one is exploring Christ. And, and the exploring Christ typically on the average American church makes up about 10% of whoever's sitting out there, about 10% of the church. And the exploring Christ person would say, yeah, I I think I believe in God. Not sure about the whole Jesus thing, though. Faith is really not a big part of my life, though, at all. I haven't haven't made that commitment. Well, then a move, something happens. Something happens in their life, and they make that commitment, and they do that first movement, and and they would self-identify then as someone who's who's growing in Christ. Growing in Christ makes up, on average, 38%. Of the American church. This is someone who who would say, yeah, I've given my life to Christ. I've made that commitment. But I'm kind of like trying to figure out what does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? I don't I don't really know exactly how to do that or what that means. The third category is what's called close to Christ. That makes up on average 27 percent of the American church population. Close to Christ person would say, man, I depend upon God daily. I mean, I seek his guidance for prayer. I need him to help me with my life. Uh, Prayer uh, or spiritual disciplines, a pretty significant part of my life. And then there's a third movement that, that, that would put people into this fourth category called 
Christ-centered. That makes up 25% of the church population. These people would say, my relationship with Christ is the most important thing in my life. And they're characterized by an attitude which says, I'm willing to sacrifice anything, anything I have. And the biggest difference between this category and the, and the previous category, the previous category said, I depend upon Christ daily to help me with my life. This category goes, oh, I get it. It's not about my life. <laughs> it's not about him helping me with my life. It's about his kingdom. That's why I'm willing to sacrifice absolutely anything for it. Now, what's really, really interesting, if you look at the third group, the close to Christ group, this is the group that stalls out the most in church. Isn't that interesting? The close to Christ group reports the highest level of being stalled spiritually, where they go, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, I mean, I've, I've been a Christian for 15 years. Sometimes that even prevents them from saying, hey, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do because, well, I should know. I've been a Christian, I've been at church crying out my whole life. I should know what to do. And so what they do is they, they're the ones who tend to also be dissatisfied with the church. Ah, church isn't meeting my needs. We talked about it last week, so they kind of church hop. Ah, I'm going to go over here. Ooh, this is novel, and they like it. And then it's, but then they hit that wall again, and ah, I'm stalled. And, and so they end up doing this kind of bump around thing. Now, what's really interesting is through the study, they also looked at what are the things that cause these movements, right? Because, like, okay, if I'm in three, I want to get out of three. <laughs> I want to get in four, you know? What, what causes that? And so they look at, okay, what are like beliefs and attitudes that, that are really movement-oriented? And here they are. And, okay, what are, what are the spiritual practices? We talked about some of those last week that really kind of you know, create movement. And they're a little different in each category. But what's really interesting is church activities. Okay, those are the things like that you can go, I'm going to go to that or I'm going to do this sort of thing. Only two appeared on this final movement. Only two organized church activities appeared on this final movement. And those were someone who says, I'm, a, I'm attending or I'm a part of an additional teaching and worship experience. That's, that's why we do Wednesday nights. That's why many of you guys are in other Bible studies where there's worship and there's study of the Bible. The second one, and this was actually the first, meaning it had a, a greater priority, was that have they answered this right here, I serve those in need through my church once a month or more. Isn't that interesting? The biggest church experience factor that kept someone from being stalled spiritually who's at this place is saying, I am serving people in need through my church at least once a month or more. See, if you're stalled, you guys, I just, like, I can't say this strongly enough, if you would say, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm close to Christ, that sort of thing. But if I were dead honest right now, yeah, I'm kind of a little stalled. I kind of show up and I do the thing. And it, is it feeling a little old? Yeah, it kind of is feeling a little old. Are you involved in personal ministry? Are you serving people in need through your church? Because there's a, statistically speaking, just that, doing that alone will revitalize your faith. It really will. So because personal ministry is, is an integral, key component of spiritual growth, that's why at Timberline, this is our strategy. That's why you hear so often us talking about, go get involved in this, get involved, here's an opportunity to serve. It's not because, hey, we're dying for, you know, we need someone to be here. No, you need to be there. 
you need to do this stuff. You need to be serving. We'll, we'll, we'll create a ministry if, if, if you just start serving. It doesn't even hardly matter what it is. Meet a need. Step in and serve because your heart will be changed by it in a way that is far bigger than maybe even a, a need that you might meet through that. And so this is why we involve as many people as early as possible and as young as possible as we can. This is why if you go into the kids area, you're going to see high schoolers working with them. Why is that? Because we want those high schoolers serving. Are they, are they adequately prepared? Probably not. But we want them there. No one's ever adequately prepared. We want them serving. This is why you will see sometimes people serving and you go, man, they could do a better job at that. Yeah, they can because they're inadequate. Because we want people serving. We want people plugging in because we care about their spiritual formation. We care about their, go- their, their growth. Don't let the excuse of not ready or inadequate stop you. Do not let that stop you. Because seriously, when is anyone ever adequate? You know what scares me? What scares me is a person who goes, oh, yeah, I get this. I can do it. Give me the reins. No, those people are freak me out. I want the people who are like, oh, I don't know. I mean, if God doesn't come through, this is a wreck. I want those kind of people because that keeps people teachable. It keeps them pliable. It keeps them dependent. It keeps them flexible. Verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, Jesus did lesson. This is 101. This whole trust thing growing. This is lesson 101. Now the next verse he goes, okay, now we're going to do lesson 201. Look at verse uh, 22. It says immediately. That's the key word. Right on the heels of that, immediately he moves into lesson 201. Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray by himself. That's last week. Remember, we're talking about private disciplines later that night. He was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. Now, he sent them to do something that they they know how to do. These guys are fishermen. They have rowed around this lake many, many times. They are very capable of doing this. And he sends them out to do something that they know they can do. They have great assurance. They're positive they can do. And all of a sudden, things fall apart. They're not moving. They're not making any sort of headway. It says that they're there all night long in this process. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, all night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking in the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Total side note here. Let me say one thing about this because this always makes me this this is one of those um, internal pieces that that should give you um, confidence that the Bible is reliable, that it's accurate history. Here's what I mean by that. Historians, when they evaluate texts, ancient texts, they have this idea. It's called the criterion of um, embarrassment, which is this. If someone records an account and they put themselves in it and they're kind of made to look the fool or a coward or whatever, there's better evidence that that's a true account versus a false account. Does that make sense? This is just kind of a historical you know, criterion, the, the criteria of embarrassment. 
all throughout the gospel, you know, Matthew, the guy who's writing this book, he's one of the guys in the boat. Notice that they never paint them. It's not like Jesus came walking out. We're like, yeah, go Jesus. And we, you know, rode harder toward him and we pushed on and we, they're like, we're freaking out. We didn't even know what he was. We thought he was a ghost and none of us had courage. None of us had fear. All of us had fear. None of us had faith. And so that's, that's sort of this, this experience here as we read some of these passages. Verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this next passage, here's what I think, and I hope this isn't reading too much into the text. Here's what I think Peter is starting to put together in his mind. I think he's starting to connect some dots from Lesson 101, and maybe he's starting to get, okay, maybe this is too on. Maybe there is something going on here. He says, maybe, he thinks, okay, it seems like if, if I do whatever I can do, Jesus will do what only he can do. And then he, here's, here's how he tests the hypothesis. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, I hope it is, I'm not sure. If it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now notice Peter doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to do something awesome. I'm going to, you know, that's not faith. That's foolishness. That's idiocy. Okay, lots of, lots of ministries, lots of things are started. Lots of activities are done like that. We're just, oh, I'm going to go do this and God will come through. Peter doesn't do that. He goes, if, if God invites me, if he invites me, then if I do what I can do, he will do what only he can or only he's able to do. And so Peter asks, will you invite me? Is it you? Do you, do you want me to do this? He's the only one of the, of the 12 that do that. In verse 29, Jesus says, invitation granted. Come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. See, Peter did the same thing he had learned to do with the bread and the fish. He said, I don't know how to walk on water. I know how to climb over a boat. I've done that. I know how to climb over a boat. I know how to walk. So if I do what I know to do, maybe Jesus will do what only he can do. See, the Christian experience is this. But here's my question. What if, what if we would actually start praying, God, would you invite me somewhere? Would you invite me somehow out of my comfort zone? It, it might mean you make a big move. It might mean you, you, you switch some big things that you're doing in your life. It might mean that you get involved in some areas around that you'd go, oh, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about it, and it bothers me that we don't have it, but I don't want to, you know, I'll, I'll pray for the people who do it, but that's not... That's not really me. If it's on your mind, if it's something that, that, that you're thinking about, um, now you'll still have questions. Oh, but what about this or what about that? And Jesus will say, oh, come on. You know how to fill out a form, don't you? Yeah, but I can't go on a mission trip. I, I didn't tell you to go on a mission trip. I told you to fill out the form. Okay. Well, do you know how to walk down the hall? Yeah, I guess I could probably walk down the hall. Okay, that's all you've got to do. Don't worry about it. Just give me what you have. If you can fill out a form and walk down the hall, can you knock on this door? Can, can can you knock on the door? Yeah. Okay. Just give me what you have. Just knock on the door. Do what you know to do. And I will do what only I can do. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, this is Jesus on the water. This is, this is reminding him of what he doesn't know how to do, his inadequacies. He said he was afraid. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, little trust, he said, why did you doubt me? 
Why did you start trusting in your abilities? Why did you start thinking it was all on you had to kind of pull it all together or it wouldn't happen? Now, we, we tend to look at this often as Jesus chastising him. I don't think so. I think he was proud of him. There were 11 others who didn't even take that step. I think he was going, oh, you're so close, Peter. Why did you, why did you falter right at the end? You were so close. Why did you start thinking it was about you? Verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, after 101 and after 201, truly you are the son of God. Think about this. If, if you've been impacted by, let's say, um, any ministry at Timberline Church, okay? If, 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 you've, been, if you've taken part in, if, you, if you've enjoyed any of the ministries here, even, even in this community, it's not because there were all these phenomenally skilled people. It's because someone stepped up and said, well, I guess I can do what I know I can do. And then God did what only he could do. So here's, here's the question that, that I want to kind of leave you with this week. I, I want us, you, me, all of us to wrestle with is what is God nudging you to do? It's that thing that just kind of won't go away. You just kind of keep thinking about it or you keep returning to it or it's just it's something that you just continually see. Now, just because you're thinking about it doesn't mean it's God, but it's that place to ask, God, would you invite me into that? Would you invite me? And then his, he might respond and say, well, yeah, walk down the hall, fill out the form, talk to the person, knock on the door. Give me what you have, your inadequacies. See, the issue was not, like we said earlier, oh, if I don't go, who will go? I'm so important. No, 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 no. It's not that. The issue is that God wants to do something in your faith. He wants to do something with your intimate relationship with him. And this is one of the five ways he's going to do it. If you drill down into any great movement of God, you, you drill down into anyone's story in life, there's going to be some time, you look behind it deep enough, when someone said, man, that's huge, there's no way I can do it, but I guess I'll do what I can do. And then God did what only he could do, and it was this phenomenal thing. And you know, we oftentimes tend to give you know, credit to those people, wow, you're so wonderful, and accept an award, but, but they know deep down, wow, I, I was inadequate for it. I just did what I could do. God is this one who came through. In a phenomenal way. And if you do, here's what's so cool. If you do, if you do what you can do, God will do something in you that you've never experienced before. You've never experienced in your relationship with him. But the sad part is if you don't, if you fail to do it, you'll never know. You'll never know what God might have done inside you. In uh, 1965, there, there was a study done on the campus of Yale University. They, they took graduating seniors, and, and they, they were educated about the dangers of tetanus. And they were given an opportunity to, to get a free inoculation, inoculation at, the, uh, at the health center. Now, while the majority of all the students who, who, who were educated about the dangers of tetanus were absolutely convinced that they needed to do it, that it would be essential for their physical growth and health, only 3% actually got the vaccination. Um, another group of students, same scenario, were given the exact same lecture, exact same scenario. Only difference is they were given a copy of the campus map with, with the medical center circled on the map. 
And they were challenged right there. When are you going to do this in your week? Open up your calendars. Find a time that you're going to commit to go to the campus medical center and to get the inoculation. What's interesting is nine times as many students got the inoculation who were in that second group. Um, Let me circle the health center for you. Open up your bulletin. This is the health center, the the inside of your bulletin. If you're at that place where you go, yeah, that's good. I'm all about that. I love. Yeah, that's I believe that would totally help me if I did that. Okay, let me circle the health center for you. Just like last week when we talked about this idea of, okay, private private disciplines, one of the big frustrating pieces is things that are really impactful for you don't always line up with me because I'm hardwired different. And so it's frustrating and I burn out and I got to forget it. Serving is kind of a similar way. You have a particular shape. You have a hardwiring. God's, that's a Holy Spirit thing. The way in which when you serve, you come alive and you feel God's pleasure and you go, man, this is awesome. Or you, you know, you see God doing things in your life will be probably a little different than the person next to you. We actually have an online assessment, and this is why we've poured energy and resources into this. If you go to this website, a lot of you guys have done this. If you've gone through Summit 2, you've done this. You can go on the website and you can take this shape assessment. And the shape assessment gives you kind of a picture of how has God hardwired me and what are the gifts and the experiences and the passion and kind of all the different stuff that when you bind it all together, it's me. So that when I serve in that direction, yeah, it like, it like lines up with how God made me. And then I, I see God working in my life. This is, this is circling the health center. Make, if you haven't done this, do it. Make a commitment to, because to, if you don't do this, you probably won't go, well, I'll, okay, I'll step in. You might. But make a commitment to do something like that. This week, take one step. Do what you know to do so God can do what only he can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for people people who have stepped out, people who have done what they knew what they knew to do, and it allowed your spirit to actively dynamically do what what only he could do. And God, so many of us, we're we're sitting in rooms and and we're a part of ministries and we're a part of relationships that that are the result of people who who have done that very thing. Thank you for people who invested in our lives, people who stepped out. Lord, I pray that that you would really expand our faith. And and I know that's something you want to do. That's that's your whole kingdom initiative. Your plan is to grow our trust in you. And God, this is one of the areas, lots of things we don't have control over, but this seems to be one of the areas that we actually have a decent impact on. We can show up. We can pick up the form. We can go to the group. We can step forward. God, I pray that you would give us just something internally, Lord, to show us or to push us, to move us in that direction. And God, wherever we are in that spiritual growth continuum, if we're kind of kicking the tires of faith or we're at that place where yeah, Christ is hugely important in my life, but honestly, I'm a little stalled. God, this might be the thing that you would use, the catalyst to grow and expand our faith. God, may we be characterized by this kind of solid confidence in you. Thank you for a community, God, who cares deeply about reflecting Christ to our world. 
Thank you that you care even more deeply about shaping us into Christ's image. And we pray this in his powerful, powerful name. Amen. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks for being a part of Wednesday Night Community. Hope you'll be back next week. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, providential relationships. Number, number four on there. Our prayer team is going to be up front. If you, if you brought your, your offering and you're a faithful uh, giver, uh, offering plate is in the back on your way out. Thanks so much for your faithfulness. Love you guys.